and thank you for tuning in. Welcome to a new episode of the Passion for Technology podcast by EBV Electronic. Welcome to the Passion for Technology podcast. As part of the Paris Climate Agreement, Europe is committed to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, if possible. To reach this goal, the industry must significantly contribute to reducing emissions. In recent years, the focus has been on improving energy efficiency. Eurostat reports that between 2007 and 2021, the industry reduced energy consumption by 12.4%. However, efficiency has now reached such a high level that further improvements in many areas are only possible at disproportionately high costs. Additionally, this development is hitting physical limits, and there are concerns about the secure availability of energy. Our guests today are André Aurel, Director Segment City and Infrastructure at EBV Electronic. Hi, André. Hi, Mustafa. Thanks to have me. Yeah, well, thanks for being back on the show. And Dr. Christian Thiel, CEO at Energy Nest. Hi, Christian. Hi, Mustafa. Hi, André. Nice meeting you. Hi, Christian. Christian, around 10,000 petajoules of energy were consumed by industry in Europe in 2021. How much potential do you see for future reductions of consumption? Well, if you ask me for a number, I would have to report back that this is very difficult to estimate because of all the variables you have involved. I mean, you know, there is energy prices for various types of energy. There is technological process. And last but certainly not least, and actually, whilst I think about this, most importantly, political will, because regulation at the end of the day determines the speed of things. So I wouldn't really be in a position to put a figure on it. But, you know, if you turned around and look for, let's say, areas that still have vast potential, almost untapped potential, you could look into the area of process heat and steam. And if we think about waste heat, there's tremendous numbers around, you know, waste heat that the German industry emits, waste heat potential across Europe, and then worldwide, the number becomes even more significant and more scary. And I think, you know, tapping into waste heat, which is in essence capturing it when it's available and not needed, and then making it accessible upon need, you can lift tremendous efficiencies that are actually a no-brainer. Not just in an environmental sense, but also an economical sense, because you give a waste product, waste energy some sort of almost primary energy use case. And this is something where I think oh, there are a lot of low-hanging fruits for waste heat recovery technologies, at least from the way that we see it. There is, for instance, one, you know, actually our first project in operation that is with Yara in Norway. Yara, the biggest fertilizer company worldwide, one of the biggest. We have a solution for the internal steam grid where we take off waste steam from the high-pressure steam system and then basically discharge into the low-pressure steam system. Our thermal battery, so we do energy storage uh, for all the listeners out there, uh, thermal energy storage to be more specific, enables Yara with a relatively small installation. So we have four of our 20-foot-size shipping containers installed to save about 13 gigawatt hours electricity per year and 6,000 tons CO2 per year. And those are Yara numbers, not ours. So you see that the potential is there. And this is representative of a chemical plant 
And there's not gazillions out there, but many, many, many hundreds or thousands of chemical plants. So this is one example to avoid waste energy or dumped energy, which is good for environment and also for the EBIT of the company at the end of the day. But if you allow me one step further, one thought further, I think the use of energy or the consumption, it's not the actual problem. We have to look at the origin of energy. Where does it come from? And I think the big problems around the 10,000 petajoules that you are mentioning is they are generated by fossil fuels. From our viewpoint as energiness, predominantly from the industry, the industry is largely powered by fossil fuels. In Europe, it's gas, natural gas. In other locations, uh, <laughs> gets even worse. You know, there's coal, there's diesel, there's all sorts of stuff. You could get into a discussion easily, you know, those industries or those companies that have opted for biomass boilers that is in many legislations seen as green, if that is really green. But let's not go there here because I think the main problem is really fossil fuels. And I think here we need to come to a fuel switch. So from fossil to green electricity and with that fuel switch to electrification. And I think in that regard, the 10,000 petajoules are not the problem. It's really how we generate those 10,000. And there is lots of work to do. So it's basically this fuel switch topic that we have on one side. That's one stream. And the other stream is what I was referring to with the Yara project, enhancing energy efficiency, where I think there is also lots of work to do. I think with regards to the second stream, the energy efficiencies, companies are almost intrinsically motivated to look for efficiencies. At least from our discussions, we see that there is a certain thought process and a realization that you know, wasting energy, wasting resources, wasting money at the end of the day, it's not a good thing and should be improved. But I think we need to see a step change here. And also we see already that ISO regulation, for instance, foresees that the momentum and energy efficiency can and has to definitely be increased. So that's a very good momentum, I think. From our viewpoint, just maybe to conclude on this first answer here, because I've been talking for a bit, is just to pick up pace. We've gotten into a you know, sort of societal consensus of these baby steps where you can argue, yes, to take a democracy with you, you need baby steps. But I think what we do with regards to energy efficiencies and fuel switches, we're losing the race clearly and we need a true step change here. Thank you, Christian. You've covered a lot of ground in your response to this very first question. I think it's worthwhile to dive deeper into many of the aspects that you've touched up on. Andre, in my intro, I mentioned how energy efficiency comes with disproportionately high costs in one area or the other, almost all across the board. What's the alternative to increasing energy efficiency in order to reduce emissions? I mean, Christian already mentioned a few. Could you extend on that or dive a little deeper? Yes. So let me give you some data I have collected about the CO2 footprints in Europe or worldwide. So the market size for the carbon dioxide permits, that means tokens or allowance yeah, for the factories, rise from 2022 by 164%. And it's valuable about 760 billion euro. And this is the largest impact on the industry worldwide, not only in Europe. Europe is the largest share, but worldwide. And now the question is, can we precisely measure that? Can we measure what is the CO2 impact 
from a single company or from a single factory or from a single product. And I can tell you, coming from that semiconductor industry, that we can do that. Yes, of course, we have technology which can be implanted on each machine in the factory separately. And with mapping those measurements, those meter data into the CO2 emission data, you can precisely, or let's say semi-precisely measure what is the CO2 stamp for each product coming out of the production. And this is something where we see as a trend where we need to move. And this is actually where we can precisely measure what is the impact per type of industry on the world market. Now, I believe this CO2 token market is widely open. You know, some of the richest guys are present here on this market selling the tokens. But the point is um, now, can we do it only from hardware point of view or there is also software innovative stuff like blockchain, which can track and measure, let's say, the trades of those tokens, which can track and measure also the solar formula, the wind farm measuring, and so on. So all this equipment can be installed on the market and can be used, let's say, for further emission reduction, and with that also energy efficient price. In the construction sector, efforts are being made to meet some of their energy needs in a localized manner through methods like photovoltaics. Could this be conceivable for the industrial sector as well, André? Well, in simply words, industrial facilities often have large roof areas to be available for solar panels. And that's where photovoltaic systems can generate electricity directly on site, Uh, reducing the need of purchasing energy from the grid, and of course, lowering overall electricity costs for the facility itself. And why not? This can be definitely of use, but not only photovoltaic. The newest trend is that we are talking about the ecosystem. That means that battery storage or energy storage in general goes hand in hand with photovoltaic. With that, we are talking about heat pump installations, smart ventilation, HVACs of new generation. We are talking about a mobility trend, let's say, which is moving slowly towards the V2G vehicle to the grid. And that means that the parking lots of the buildings, of the factories, will be available of the battery sharing in the future. I strongly, I, I'm, still, <laughs> I'm still an optimist. I still believe that V2G will come on stage even that we see different kind of trends and dynamics on this market. But, you know, this is an open field, open field for any innovation which is coming. wanted to add to what Andre was saying, you know, the energy demand for manufacturing companies, how they could or can generate their own energy and back to photovoltaics. It's a good question. And I think, you know, I said originally we need a fuel switch, basically green electricity to generate green steam, given that especially industry relies on heat, you know, as the use for the energy, we need some sort of green steam from the power plug, so to say, yeah, which includes green electricity in the first place. Now, photovoltaics is the obvious choice. And I think what everyone has on his or her mind, but there's also wind. 
And there's also other sources of renewables that need to be tapped in. And just to give you one example of such other sources, we have another project built for an American company that has a manufacturing site in Belgium. It's Avery Dennison. They do categorize them as material science, but what they basically do is special adhesives. And they decided not to rely fully on natural gas anymore. As many other industrial companies, you know, they have different production steps and require one instance in a drying process, steam that is generated from burning gas as today, as you would if you need high-grade steam. And they have done a project with us. And done means basically, you know, thought about, engineered, bring a concept in numbers, and then basically build it for operation. And a technology that is called CST, concentrated solar thermal. It's interesting because that is basically what you see in Germany, but especially in Denmark. Single family homes or multifamily homes is collectors that collect sun energy, so heat, and basically provide this heat into the warm water cycle for the homes. So for your hot shower, basically, or for heating. Now, obviously, for the industrial context, you know, these collectors can be vastly bigger and a bit more effective on the heat side and tap into temperatures up to 400 degrees Celsius or so. So Avery Denison has built their own little solar park with uh, CST, connected our thermal battery to it. That's bigger than in the AR project and can thereby decarbonize or partially decarbonize their operations. And this relates to the drying process that I just mentioned. And the interesting thing is, you know, even though it's Belgium, it's not, you know, it's not southern Spain, it's not Italy where you have plenty of sun. In summer, on sunny days, basically, we can substitute 100% of the natural gas that is consumed until before this installation. And on an annual average, basically, you know, taking into account all this uh, rainy season of our very long autumn, winter and spring here in Northern Europe, basically, you know, on annual average, this would yield 10% gas replacement. Now, the comment I want to make is this is a relatively also, it's not a big installation, so it can be scaled up. So you can easily target decarbonization levels of 40, 50%. And you can also couple this thermal battery, for instance, not just with CST, so concentrated solar thermal, but also with wind energy or photovoltaics via an electric heater that would be connected to our thermal battery. And kind of long story short on how we integrate our solutions, basically, this shows that you can drive up decarbonization levels for such manufacturers easily to 70, 80, or 100% even, just depending on how you configure these systems. So to answer your question, yes, photovoltaics are a big part of the game, but it's not only. There's other sources of renewables that can be smartly connected. I think, you know, probably if you read a bit into the energy transition and the discussion and debates and then go into use cases and technologies, you pretty quickly realize that there's not one technology that does it all for all of our purposes. And that's electric mobility or high temperature steel smelting without fossil fuels, etc. You need an array of technologies. You need to create competition so that these technologies come down in price. So I think it's important to be open-minded about you know technology use cases and what we want to roll out. And this is, for instance, something I'm missing when I'm reading a newspaper, so from the media. This is why I'm thankful for podcasts like these and guys like you to have the discussion with, but also what's being advocated from the political side, especially in Germany. The big problem I see here is if you do not 
read much about the energy transition and only listen to what's being said, you easily get the impression that you just wait 10, 15 years and we solve each and every climate problem in Germany with hydrogen that will be cheap and plentiful available. <laughs> it's not just a myth, it's almost like an urban legend. Hydrogen has extremely valuable use cases and it's definitely needed in the economy. But certainly it's not the only technology. And, you know, looking at, you know, what especially the Germans are pushing in terms of technologies, it's largely hydrogen. And I heard there is now an energy storage, let's say strategy supposed to be worked on unreleased in Q1, I believe, but I haven't seen anything of this yet. And I think, you know, you need to look at hydrogen, of course, but you need to look at energy storage. How else do you want to couple sectors and or couple supply and demand? You need to look at heat pumps. You need to look at, you know, permitting timelines for photovoltaic projects or wind projects. Everything needs to come together and be faster at the same time. So we need to become much more differentiated in our debate and also what's being displayed to the wider public to have an honest discussion, but also make the right decisions. And at the end of the day, horses for courses. Of course, you will want to have solutions ready for use cases that are highly efficient and as low in cost. And, you know, that's not the case with hydrogen for every application. And I think there is a maturity process to be gone through in our public debate to realize this and be a bit more open-minded and not just bet on one horse. Maybe just to add, we also see, especially within the goal to rise the efficiency, we also see the DC bus in combination with AC bus is coming back to the factory automation infrastructure. And that's also, I have a question to Christian, actually. How do you see, let's say, the experience we will gain in factory automation, how we can clone this for the residential cluster market? Because you see, the individual house is, as an individual object, is moving in the same direction. And if you cluster a street or a small villages, then you have the same model you can apply as you are using for the factory automation from this channel? Actually, good question. I have to say I'm not a housing expert. Yeah? And uh, you know, we are dealing mainly with manufacturers, industrial companies, be it family business, very small, to multinational companies. What I see, though, is that actually in the housing sector or B2C, a lot of development has taken place, ranging from the awareness of customers wanting to change to these mini power plants on their balconies and reducing the electricity cost or the electricity bill to integrated solutions in the household combined with algorithms that basically help you determine optimal use cases from a cost perspective. And, you know, what you see with companies like NPAL and uh, 1,5, I mean, this basically shows that there's lots of momentum in the market. I think it's important that we don't just look at the housing sector, but from a pure energy balance point of view, also to the industrial sector. Actually, I think the industrial sector in terms of interacting flexibly with the grid, for example, is behind for many reasons. Access to power grids is one item. You know, the dependency on legacy fuels like natural gas from the pre-Ukraine war period <laughs> is another topic. And stuff is happening. But I think companies don't have orientation yet, like you have in the building sector, for instance, where at the end of the day, you know, you need to, it's cost and being green both together. In the industry, we're still waiting for the guidelines 
from politics, basically, where to go, what investments are safe to make. At least this is what we get fed back from industrial customers is like this tremendous insecurity about what the framework will be, the political framework, the legislation, what is being rewarded, what is being penalized. And there is a lack of clarity, I would say. And we need to kind of like get to stable framework conditions here that we bring the broader industrial cluster on the same speed train as the private building sector. And then also think about sector coupling, because I think there's also lots of potential that you can't look at now, really. You see some activities going on. So for instance, I live in Hamburg and there's district heat connections from the industry to residential area, but this is only starting in terms of a wider rollout now. And again, we need to become faster to become truly green, i.e. CO2 emissions down and cheaper at the end of the day. You know, let's not forget, Germany is a high energy cost country. This is really a problem. And there's a not so secret anymore debate across many sectors, you know, is Germany still the right place to be for industrial companies when considering existing production or even new production? So we really need to look at our general energy cost level in the country and basically have almost like a program of how to bring these energy costs down. Maybe just to add on to an initial point I made on waste heat. So I just checked while we spoke and in Germany, we have 80 terawatt hours of waste heat per year, Germany alone from the industry. In order to generate that type of waste heat, you need to burn 94 terawatt hours of natural gas. And then you can make the math basically on what an average apartment of 80 square meters basically uses today in terms of natural gas for heating and warm water and everything. You could eat almost 20% of all apartments in Germany with this waste heat. Of course, you shouldn't consider saving that natural gas for households, but just the magnitude. So I think we're talking about big numbers here and it's completely under-talked in today's picture. We talk about charging stations for electric vehicles and you know i have an electric car i'm a great fan of stuff but for really substantially driving down co2 emission numbers we need to kind of like widen our perspective and take this single largest emitter into focus which is the industrial sector and the industrial sector they're not bad guys they need help and help comes from stable planning preconditions that need to be in place and they're not in place and that's a big lack that needs to be fixed. Technologies are there, and it's about enabling rollout and helping industry to come down whilst reducing energy prices. So for everyone that's listening, there's been a lot of head nodding going around while Christian and André had this exchange. And you know what? I agree with both of you to the degree that I can and that I'm knowledgeable about this. But I have to say, Christian, to your point, it warrants to have a very differentiated perspective when looking at these things. And I, for one, for instance, someone who comes from a different domain, have to say that I had to read books from, let's say, Vaclav Smil about energy and civilization and numbers don't lie and, you know, a differentiated look at what energy transition truly can look like. So I agree with you there. It's something that warrants a deeper discussion than what's happening in either media or sometimes even in policy circles. Andre. In instances where an industrial company can generate at least a portion of its required energy, how does that impact plant technology? Can plant technology just continue to operate as it is, or will it require adjustments? I believe uh, it will require not only adjustments, but also adaptation to the new technologies. 
It will require education of the new generations coming. And there are, let me say, plenty of room for improvements and new innovations. I'm talking about, for example, load management and scheduling, you know. So the point is that industrial facility can manage its own consumption more efficiently by scheduling the production or, let's say, optimizing and store the energy within the energy storage. We didn't touch before on field, but, for example, peak shaming, which is used nowadays as a model for the energy demand at peak times and the Factories actually are avoiding to pay penalties to utilities. And that's why the energy storage as a peak shaving model is used for the companies to balance their overall consumption. And this kind of management, let's say the energy management within the company, will be, let's say it's an open field for innovation. Um, within the energy management, we are talking about, let's say, sophisticated energy gateways using clouds, using predictors, forecasters, and so on. And of course, also the most important is the grid interaction and net metering. So at the end of the day, they will need communication with utility, and that's a must within the tariff handling and so on. There is a new wave for the new generations. There are new coming let's say, equipment on the field, which are called energy balancers, which are actually have one goal, to fill the batteries when the price per kilowatt hour is low and to use them when it's high. That's it. That's the model. And those balancers are actually, you know, with high intelligence, using all kinds of sources, all kinds of sensors within the company and outside the company, including the weather stations and things like that. And this is less of the new trend and open field for any innovation which is coming. I bet on Z generation, which is now in voting shows, you know, we are now here to educate and to adapt, and it's a good time to move forward. Christian, can we double down on energy storage systems, you know, for self-sufficiency in the industrial sector? What technologies are currently available to achieve this? So I think with regards to energy storage, natural gas is somehow energy storage in a way, but it's the old world, clearly. So if you look at what's available now, new tech, we all know lithium-ion batteries, either from our phones, watches, or electric vehicles, or even big battery projects that have been built. But of course, lithium-ion has a certain use case, right? It's electron in, electron out, so electricity to electricity. You have thermal energy storage that is looking at the heat side of life and heat consumption in the industry is the currency. You need heat to produce. Every product that you touch or consume basically relies on heat in the production process. Heat is everywhere. yeah. And then basically you have thermal energy storage, just to go back to the original point, that enables parking heat for a while, be it generated from green electricity to be used as heat at greater 95% efficiency, by the way, or you just buffer heat as a waste heat, you know, enhanced waste heat recovery system. So to park the heat when it's available, but doesn't have a use case. And then when you have a use case, you can just send it. And then you have hydrogen, of course, hydrogen, also gas, you can store it by storing it. And that basically captures the world of energy storage, let's say in the short context for now. 
And I think it's not only important for being self-sufficient, but actually for the energy transition. So transitioning from yesterday to tomorrow, but also or especially for the future state so that we work with a completely integrated green energy system. And as you know, your renewable energies fluctuate by their nature. So to harvest them and live on renewable energies basically makes energy storage the heart of any sort of energy transition or energy target state type of scenario. In that way, you know, we've touched about the different solution. I think it's important to note that each of the solutions has their own limitations. We need to be completely frank about this. And that only helps, you know, determining the right solution for the right use case. So for instance, if you are involved in producing electricity and feeding it into the grid and being active in the peak shaving, for instance, or support power grids, you talk about a lithium ion or any sort of other electrochemical battery that can help bringing electron over storage to electron with regards to, for instance, what we do, thermal energy storage, we help companies to become much more efficient and or green with regards to providing process heat between 100 and 400 degrees Celsius. Actually, everything that is really steam-based, so that's where we can add value and be more as the only competitive solution for integrating any sort of heat use case, heat purpose with green electricity, renewable electricity. And then there's also applications beyond this temperature range. So for instance, in steel production, where you have process temperatures above 1000 degrees Celsius, I mean, this is not regular thermal energy storage anymore that you're looking at, that there you would be looking at hydrogen, just to give one example. Energy storage is not a one-stop shop, so to say, in terms of applications, but also in terms of who are you looking at. There's various to take into account. But I think most importantly, it's not the job of the industry or the responsibility of the industry to be self-sufficient on green energy. It's fine if you know that you can reach a sustainable target state or replicate a sustainable target state with partners. So for instance, Green energy providers, and this is common today, you know, Google or some other company builds an offshore wind park and sells their green electrons via PPA. I mean, those partnerships are absolutely fine. And you have to look at the energy systems quite quickly beyond a single player that can do certainly something, but also relies on input and gives output into the world. And partnerships and sector coupling is key here. And especially if you look at sector coupling, it's interesting how then technologies make even more sense to be implemented. And then you land again, you know, energy storage that is between grids and individual players. So power plants, for instance, or thermal energy storage between grids when they are basically stressed by high renewable loads that can be taken off, for instance, by either lithium-ion batteries or thermal energy storage to be then utilized as process heat from these cheap renewables when they were available into individual players. So the sector coupling is becoming really, really, really important. And this is another area where I think a lot of value can be created by integrated solutions. Considering the goal of at least partially self-sufficient energy supply for industrial plants, Andre, which technical developments in electronics do you find particularly interesting and exciting? Well, I cannot imagine 
this field of improvements without the semiconductors and electronics. I mean, all the future innovations lies actually on the shoulders. Which fields I expect? Definitely the new era of smart grids. I'm talking about new era of meters, of smart meters, of gateways. The technology we have now, let's say we can implement a meter in any circuit breaker and make a circuit breaker intelligent and smart. And as you know, and utilities knows, and everybody knows that the circuit breaker is the closest node to the end user. And actually, the circuit breaker can be implemented on each machine separately. That means through these doors, we can measure what I mentioned before, the CO2 impact. And this is only one segment. There are others, you know. I had a question in the past, what is IoT? What is industrial IoT? Where to implement it? Now, exactly, we have a field of implementation, and we need IoT on the future of the energy management. And this is exactly where I believe, personally, that this field of innovations will just explode. Now we are in excellent time to do that. We call to action any startup or anybody of, let's say, of goodwill who wants to participate on this field. And we discussed about the advanced energy storage before. So Christian mentioned clearly the position of battery storage, hydrogen, and so on. What we think is actually that there is a, a matter to combine all these technologies together. You know, so I mentioned before the blockchain. I mentioned high-end gateways. So we need to have a model for centralized and decentralized systems and something in between. So we need to have an open space models which can make, uh, let's say, the new age energy domain or energy transition very efficient. And here we're talking also nowadays about AI, artificial intelligence, predictive maintenance, machine learning. All this stuff will help us. And this is, you know, you cannot use it without the semiconductors, intelligent gateways, system on modules, so industrial computing boards. All this stuff are available. We are distributor of semiconductors. We are on the edge of technologies. We are now actually learning what will be needed for the next steps, for the next generations. And we are also influencing our semiconductor vendors in which direction they should go. So this is an open field. And I believe not only low-ball semiconductors, I'm also talking about the power semiconductors, wideband gap, and things like that. And the point is that, just imagine all the inverter stuff, you know, so EV charging, highway, fast EV charging infrastructure, that 70, 80% of the cost of fast EV charging station is actually built out of the power semiconductors. So that's a huge, let's say, opportunities, land of opportunities for all of us. Christian, to what degree is self-sufficiency desirable when it comes to energy supply for industrial customers? I mean, isn't networking with other industrial companies, with grid operators, so-called sector coupling, an important part of securing energy supply? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sector coupling is key. Self-sufficiency, if you just think about it for a while, it must be extremely inefficient, right? Because there's no exchange of surpluses. If everyone is self-sufficient, then you could argue that you bring back the energy transition discussion back to a very small electricity discussion, which it is clearly not. So I think Sector coupling is key. It's clearly desirable because it allows for smarter solutions. And simply, you know, players have 
different requirements and also preconditions with regards to their energy connectivity or connections or use cases that should allow for, you know, individual integration into a connected world. And connected, I don't mean just the online world, but basically energy world, which is electricity and heat. How else would you otherwise get surplus electricity to uh, industrial, single industrial site or multiple industrial site and convert electricity to heat to provide the heat from, let's say, excess renewables? Again, I mean, it's the same discussion that we went through. So I think it doesn't make sense in gazillion isolated little worlds, but needs to be part of a greater something. And fit solutions that can also include non-public grids, for instance. So it's great if someone can be self-sufficient, but it shouldn't be the rule as it would be a big constraint for many players. Andre, how high do you estimate the potential for self-generated energy in industry? How many of those 10,000 petajoules could be generated by owned and operated energy sources? That's a tricky question. <laughs> to be honest, I don't have a clear answer. I think it's also um, a fairly tough question. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a tough question. Maybe, Christian, you can jump in here. I believe it's a long-ranger. It's a long-range strategy which, which needs to be applied. It really depends on the location of the industrial facility. If it is close to the river stream, then hydropower could be useful. It really depends. As we discussed before, it's a bundle of different technologies of different ecosystems together to reach the self, let's say, enough self-sufficiency. And as we know from the Game of Thrones, winter is coming. It means we need to survive the winter. And this is the critical period for Europe, you know, how to survive the winter. Is the energy storage or the, any kind of storage we are doing for saving the energy for, let's say, bad times, good enough or not? I believe at the end of the day, utilities and um, energy providers Backbone or buffering will be still needed, at least in the transition phase. And we are now in learning curve. We need to learn our lesson. We need to learn how to, let's say, from industrial experience, how to use some patterns, some models, also for residential stuff, for residential cluster types and things like that. Maybe, Christian, you have an opinion on that? I would reframe, you know, self-generated with renewables only, and uh, they don't have to be self-generated because there is no limits to renewables. So that's actually good because self-generation is always specific to site. What about this little family-owned business that's situated in hills with trees around? They can't do photovoltaics. They, they can't do wind power except for, you know, killing the forest maybe. But they would partner up with an IPP, basically someone who provides power to them, that they can use green power to them, that they can use. And this renewables only is interesting because renewables are cheap. You're in full control. You reduce your dependence on other countries. As we learned, basically, they do not turn out as reliable. You're in charge of your own pricing. I mean, there are so many benefits uh, associated with renewables only with your realm. And it's, you know, it's 100% green and you can work with this. And then basically, you know, you can also within whatever your geographical fences, this renewable only, you can then basically think in a smart way of, you know, okay, where do I have a lot of wind and how do we get it from A to B and where's the PV coming in and how do I store it and what do we do with individual sites? What does it mean for pricing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, 
I think I like the renewables only frame more than self-sufficient in that respect. <laughs> Good point. With Andre's Game of Thrones quote, with winter is coming, and Christian, you also mentioned and touched up on not Game of Thrones, but essentially on potential and looming deindustrialization that's been haunting, well, at least German media, maybe showing its first onsets in business too. I mean, the jury is still out on that one. But ever since energy prices skyrocketed, the media has obviously been all over a potential deindustrialization. Do you also see this danger? Or will industry manage to survive global competition through further increases in efficiency, new technologies, and its own energy production? What's your take? Clearly see the danger, but I'm an optimist, not because just of optimism, but because I think, you know, we live in great times. Technologies are there and we have social media, which could or should help educate Everyone in a good scenario, <laughs> besides cat videos, for instance. We have to recognize that. Why do we have this discussion? We have this discussions for various reasons, but one of the main reasons is our high electricity prices, very high energy prices. And we have high labor costs and we have a political environment that is not operating at US speeds in terms of changes and setting some clear directions for the industry to develop in. And it's fair to basically look at the other side of the fence and say, okay, the grass is greener on the other side and basically just, you know, do some math and basically say it might not be worthwhile to stay in Germany if nothing changes. And that's a fair point. I think that is homework for us. As I mentioned at the beginning of our little discussion here, there is a great uncertainty with our customers, industrial companies that we talk to. And that is really ranging from this whole difference from this family-owned business with, I don't know, 50 million euro turnover a year to multi-billion international companies. The question is really, what can they calculate with? What is wanted? I think, and I'm leaning a bit out of the window here, maybe more than getting energy prices down, it's actually important to get reliable framework for planning. Many of these companies don't know if legislation will still be in place tomorrow or if they implement a certain technology, if that would be penalized or not incentivized, how long the permitting process would be, etc. I mean, there's all these problems and question marks, and that doesn't really help a fast decision process. So customers are open-minded, uh, industrial players are open-minded. They're eager to look for solutions, to be the first, to implement, etc. But if you don't know what the framework is going to be going forward, that is a problem for anyone who's reliant on planning. And that translates to having to rely on the status quo because you don't know what this world tomorrow will look like. And that world of the status quo is simply too expensive. Here I see a big call for action, really. Being clear on something like what does an energy storage strategy look like? What does it translate into either incentives or penalties or, for instance, both? Because energy storage, is, I mean, we've worked this out in this podcast. It's key for the energy transition. If you want to harvest renewables and utilize their low-cost price level, that only works with energy storage. Which one is then case-specific, etc.? But there needs to be a clear strategy. And then there needs to be also price signaling. Is gas now something to phase out or not? 
is CO2 something that's going to increase or not? But these fluctuating curves, they really don't help anyone and it's difficult to forecast. So I think some political signals are important here. If someone knows that he or she is faced with severely increasing CO2 price levels, the decision to decarbonize is much easier because you can calculate it. We need to get out of this uh, limbo and kind of like work out what is it that we want and also what is it that we want for industry, for example. That is very important to this country. I don't see right now that companies are being helped with planning or orientation. And this is also why I think we all sense this utter frustration about this visual helplessness <laughs> And uh, which translates into this limbo situation. So I think we really have to change here. And unfortunately, that starts with politics. Because I think we see innovation lighthouses from industries here and there. Stuff being done on hydrogen, on energy storage in various forms, in sector coupling. But unless the framework is very clear, it's difficult to really calculate or bet on the big rollout of things. That then basically brings us to the energy transition to an energy target state. That is the big uncertainty that's left uh, that needs to be tackled. And I, again, I can only say, you know, technologies are there. We have clever people everywhere. There's ideas. We're not lacking ideas. We are lacking vision of what we want and uh, legislative clarity to get there. And that's a big job that needs to be done ASAP. This has been a very or should I say, no pun intended, passionate exchange of opinions, perspectives, insights, ideas, and calls to action. And I mean, André is very well aware of this. Christian, it is tradition with our podcast that in every episode, I ask our guests to share where and how they develop their individual passion for technology. So you know what, let's start with you, Christian. You share with us, maybe briefly, when and why and how you developed your passion for technology. And then André, you'll have an additional one or two minutes to think about which new perspective and insight into your past you will give us in that sense. Christian. I think it goes back um, to my very, very early childhood and cars. I was always fascinated by cars. And I think amongst the first words that I spoke were brands of cars or car models, simply because cars somehow always represent technology, right? And that never really stopped. And, you know, funnily enough, I did my Berufsausbildung or vocational training at a car manufacturer in the south of Germany. And then also took on my, my first job. And then, you know, now passionate electric vehicle driver. It never stops with the cars. Uh, but then obviously the world becomes bigger than just cars. Uh, but the passion basically for technology and kind of like doing things more efficient, better, faster, more intelligent with every disruption basically never cease to thrill me. I guess that's probably the short answer of where the passion for technology is coming from. And how about you, André? Well, I'm coming from the seaside. And as a young kid, you know, with my father, grandfather, we used to have a sailing boat. Actually, that's a good self-sufficient model, how to use and spend the energy. And yeah, this was my start. And then I'm an EBV kid. I'm 28 years here within this company, so I develop different kind of passions here, and I, I never get rid of technologies. Nowadays, you know, this energy field is just, you know, 
taking my time a lot, to be honest. I can see great open field of opportunities. Thank you. Thank you, Andre, and thank you, Christian, for the insights that you've shared with us today. I particularly find your origin stories interesting, but I have to say, well, our podcast proper was also extremely insightful and very interesting. Dear listeners, as always, you can find more info in our show notes. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcast, Passion for Technology, on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other popular podcasting platforms. André, Christian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to meet you.